invite you to grab your beverages and come on back and take your seats as we continue with our time uh, together this morning. And as we begin, uh, I want to just tell you a little bit of a story. And the story begins in 1996. Uh, I was a young, eager freshman headed off to Bible college, and I had decided quite late in the game that I was going to pack all of my things up into my 1984 diesel Volkswagen Jetta and drive across the country uh, to go to the Pink Palace on the campus of Trinity Western University that was formerly known as Northwest Baptist College. So, because I had decided so late, I had to scramble to get things together. And they sent me this list, things you must bring with you to Bible college. And on this list was something called a study Bible. Now, I had never owned a study Bible. I thought that study Bible was a uh, verb-noun combination, that you studied the Bible, not study Bible, a compound noun that was a thing. So when I figured this out, took me a little while, I went down to the uh, local bookstore where we lived in Ontario at the time. This was when there was, still was such a thing as a local bookstore and a local Christian bookstore, and I said to the person behind the desk, I need a study Bible. And they took me to the Bible section and I came upon the largest, heaviest, darkest, most leather-bound, gold-trimmed study Bible I could find, and I took it home with me and accepted it into my heart. <laughs> I was all set. It was gold-trimmed. It was red-lettered. It was a study Bible. I was going to college. So I paid a small fortune for it, and I packed it up in my things, and I drove out to Langley. So shortly thereafter, I set foot into my first theology class in Bible college with my trusty study Bible under my arm, ready to talk about pneumatology and eschatology and, you know, ecclesiology and all kinds of stuff like that. And, you know, because my study Bible had very helpful notes on these things in it in the bottom. In fact, there were over 10,000 notes in it. So I could speak semi-authoritatively on any topic if I just glanced at the bottom and there was a study note about it. So I thought this was great. Uh, but soon after, I realized Everything was not as it seemed, or as simple as it seemed. Because, you see, I had purchased a Charles Ryrie Study Bible Expanded Edition. And as I had it explained to me, everybody knows that Charles Ryrie is the biggest advocate of modern classic premillennial dispensationalism that has ever lived or ever will live. And it was explained to me in no uncertain terms that at this college and in this classroom, we don't suffer premillennialists and their ilk around here. Well, so could I please go out and find a proper study Bible and bring it back into the classroom? And that is how this became the largest, most expensive paperweight on my on my shelf in Bible college. Without knowing it, I had actually stepped right into the thick of one of the most significant arguments in Christian, Christian circles from the late 18th to the late 20th centuries. Apparently, 
unbeknownst to me, it was deeply, deeply important to know whether you were pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, and we're not talking about, just to be clear here, generations. Like, we're not talking about millennials as a generation. We are talking about a complicated theological system with charts and graphs and whole study Bibles devoted to its advocacy and defense and propagation. So this morning, Sometimes people at Jericho, including the staff, accuse that I give all the tough texts away to other pastors to preach on. We're going to just walk right through the minefield this morning and talk about this whole theological reality. Because here at Jericho, we're working our way through the book of Revelation and a teaching series in Revelation. And one of the reasons we want to do this is because so much abuse and so much misrepresentation and hurt has come and been done by people who want to systematize, weaponize, and timeline this final book of the New Testament. And so today, we're coming in to one of those sections. And so we need to do some additional work and additional thinking on this. And as we've been working through the book of Revelation, and coming up against John's vision, we've seen and been reminded of the fact that this is set in the context of a great cosmic battle that's playing itself out across human history. It was going on in John's day, it's going on in our day and time. And it's happening between those who love, follow, and serve King Jesus and those who have committed themselves passively or actively to following and serving that which is evil. And so the forces of evil are led by Satan, and who's pictured in the book of Revelation as a dragon. And then we've talked about these two beasts that also are on that team, one of which comes up from the sea, and that beast represents dragon-manipulated political power structures that set themselves up as godlike and who oppose and actively uh, thwart the uh, reign of the coming king of Jesus. And then we also have the other uh, beast from the sea, which represents uh, a false prophet, religious powers, dragon-motivated, animated religious powers, things like legalism and other stuff. And then we have the false prophet, and the third enemy, sorry, is this city of Babylon, which uh, Pastor Wally talked about last weekend, talking about these uh, types of structures, animated uh, economic structures and other realities that perpetuate things like injustice and greed and take people far away from God. And so this struggle is going on all through the pages of the book of Revelation, and it continues until John sees in his vision one who comes to bring history to its final end. And so we're in the final uh, ending section of the book of Revelation. And so with that in mind, turn in your Bibles or on your devices with me to Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to take a look at all of this millennial madness. So I'll be reading uh, the first six verses of Revelation 20 from the New Living Translation. It's going to come up on the screen. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit, the abyss or the underworld, and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, 
who is the devil, Satan, and he bound him in chains for a thousand years. And the angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. And afterwards, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. And they had not worshipped the beast or his statue. They would not accepted his mark on their forehead and their hands, that signification of them worshipping or participating in his authority and structures. And they came to life again. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection the rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years have ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And then it continues in verse 7. When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of prison. He'll go out and deceive the nations in every corner of the earth, and he'll gather them together for this great battle a mighty army, and we'll, we'll come to that again a little bit later. But let's look at these first six verses of Revelation chapter 20. So in, the, in these six verses, John uses the phrase a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. He uses it six times over. Um, in Latin, a thousand years is called what? What do we call a thousand years? It's bled over into English too. A millennium. Yeah, a, mil, a thousand in Latin is a mile. It's a millennium in length, a thousand. And then annum, year. So, millennium, a millennium. So, in modern Western Christian thinking, there are generally, to be highly oversimplistic, three schools of thought on what is happening and described for us in these six verses. The first one is Charles Ryrie and his team, premillennialism. And then premillennialism, you know, has a couple different versions of it. So premillennialism argues that is what's going on here is that we have, you can see Jesus first coming and then his crucifixion, his ascension, the Holy Spirit comes and then we're going along, bumping along through the present age. And then at some point in premillennialism, we have tribulation, we have second coming, we have rapture, we have this period of a thousand years, and then we have the last judgment, and then we have eternity. That's what all those symbols stand for. So we have premillennialism, which is pre-tribulation or post-tribulation, uh, and what they, they argue that what's going on here is that Jesus comes again before, pre the millennium, this period of a thousand years. And then they get into all kinds of sub-arguments as to whether or not, you know, those who love God are raptured before or after the tribulation. So you can be a pre-mill, pre-trib, or pre-mill, post-trib. Got it so far? All right. So second school of thought, post-millennialism. This school of thought holds that the uh, millennium begins, and in this period of time, the church kind of gets its act together in a lot of ways and begins to see and realize in, in fresh and new and more powerful ways the gospel of the kingdom. We begin to see societies transformed. Um, here, too, we 
earth had been in a spiral of decline, but in this period, that begins to be reversed as God's kingdom comes in power, and his will is more actively done uh, on earth. And then Jesus returns for a second time, and then last judgment happens, and then eternity begins. So, post-millennialism. The amillennial or amillennial crowd understands this to be symbolic. So, they suggest that the millennium already began in the first century at Jesus' first coming, and that the kingdom, the way to understand this is just, it's a spiritual inward reality, and the kingdom of God is there as well, and that just before Jesus returns, Satan will be released for one final heyday of evil, and then Jesus will intervene, the end will come, and eternity begins. So, that's kind of your basic understanding of this notion of the millennium and this thousand years, why does he mention it six times? Why does all of these types of things? So, um, so that is sort of the, the general sense of it. And again, I'm vastly oversimplifying these systems. But I do want to pause for a minute and just make a comment about the last 200 or so years that Christians have spent arguing about this and turning it into things like identity markers and spiritual merit badges if you get the, you know, your end times eschatology right, meaning you bought the correct study Bible, or you listened to the right podcast, or you read the correct books or movies or series of books. And on movies and series of books, I will say those are almost all made by the pre-mill crowd because that makes much better storylines than the other ones. It's much more interesting and you can sell more tickets. So one of the first things to recognize and affirm is that even um, if someone sees this or any other biblical text differently than you, the first thing that I want you to do is give them credit for being a sincere student of the Bible. I am sick and tired of the language that gets used when godly, mature Christians in other areas of their life get into theological arguments and they say things like, well, you must just not take the Bible as seriously as I take the Bible. Listen. If this is a person or a group of people who want to genuinely and sincerely understand God's Word and submit their lives to it, even if you disagree or come to a different conclusion than they do, if you're here at Jericho Ridge, I want you to practice disagreeing well with them. And that does not mean demeaning them and saying that their ideas or their conclusions are stupid because they're just not reading the Bible correctly. They may come to the text with different assumptions than you do. But don't get divisive about it. Don't get chippy. And not just about this, but about other theological issues, all right? Because one of the things that gets lost when we step into this kind of posture of trying to prove to another person that they're just wrong about how they read the Bible is that this, there are things that all of these sets of people in these categories actually agree on. There's a commonality. There's, a, there's different ways of seeing how the future will unfold, but there are strong elements that you could get all of these people to agree on. There's places where they, they come together. Uh, I want to give credit in my thinking for this to Dr. Gerald Johnson. He captures these thoughts well in his book, Discipleship on the Edge. So some areas of agreement that all of these Christians would say, 
The first is like they would agree that the best is yet to come, that we live in an era of the world that is still marked by sin and evil and sickness and pain and death, and yet one day Jesus will do away with all of those things, and all of this group can agree on the fact that the best is yet to come. The other thing they can agree on is that the future is not undecided or up for grabs. In this cosmic battle between uh, the, the forces of Jesus and Satan as it plays itself out in our day and time and across every day and time, these people would all agree that it's not as if they, that Satan can somehow come up with some new strategy plan or devices that somehow he can win the day. The future is not undecided. It's not up for grabs. We've seen it every page of Revelation. The Lamb wins. In the end, the Lamb wins. So the future is not undecided. And then the third thing that these people would agree on is that the future is not in our hands, ultimately. Even, even post-millennialism, which has a view or a, or a pre a bent towards uh, thinking that we can, part, by participating in God's kingdom and working hard at gospel sharing, community transformation, uh, that we can somehow bring a, a world to a place of betterment, even post-millennialism ultimately believes that we don't bring about heaven or God's kingdom by ourselves, that at some point Jesus breaks into the picture and redeems all things and makes all things new. So those are areas of general consensus between those things. And so I think like so many theological disagreements that happen in the church, if we can focus on the fact that if we can, all of those groups agree on those three things, those things are massively more important in scope than a particularized sequence of when and how all of these other pieces are going to unfold. And so when we focus on our areas of disagreements and distinctives and we make those merit badges and we lead with those things, sometimes we diminish the fact that like, there are tons of areas of agreement and things to celebrate in these places, in these three views. There are a few other areas in Revelation chapter 20 that these groups uh, really should agree on. They ought to agree on. They try really hard not to agree on them because they want to kind of nitpick at a bunch of stuff. But here's a few other things that we've bumped into in our reading in Revelation. And the one thing is that, remember, in Revelation, when we come across numbers of any variety, the number six, the number seven, the number 1,000, the number 10,000, whatever it is, John is using these things as symbols for other things. They're, they're attempts to communicate truths to us. So we talk about um, in Revelation, the number six is a number of incompleteness or a human number. So when John uses that, he's trying to say this something is not right. It's not all put together. Uh, a number 10 or a number seven, when he uses those, he's trying to communicate this is a complete or a whole thing. And a thousand, ten times ten times ten. He's saying this is a really, really completed or holistic kind of thing. And so if we get hung up on turning numbers in Revelation into very specific literals, not 99, 999 years plus day or minus, it's a thousand years, then we get ourselves into some uh, places where we're not being consistent with our approach to the rest of Revelation. 
The other thing that these groups ought to agree on, but sometimes don't, is that Jesus is not becoming the king, so he doesn't somehow get crowned in Revelation chapter 20 at the end of all things. Jesus is currently, already, always has been, always will be the king. This chronology doesn't change that. The other thing that, this, that we would want to focus on helping these groups agree on is a notion that the gospel changes things. Because sometimes lost in the premillennial, postmillennial arguments is the, is the very core piece that the message of hope that we have as Christian people is to be shared with the world. And that as people embrace the message of Jesus, lives change. Eternities and their destinies are altered, and they begin to live out a different way, an ethic of love, of joy, of peace. And we hold out hope and a, and a firm conviction as Christians that people's lives can be changed and transformed. This is one reason why at Jericho we believe so strongly in funding missions, both globally and locally. This is why we send teams to Guatemala, and every single year we hear stories and reports of dozens of people coming to saving faith and their lives being changed, not just in practical kinds of ways, but eternal kinds of ways as well. This is why we support refugees and displaced people. This is why uh, we, we um, do things like Christmas tales, we, because we believe that the gospel changes people's lives. Just this last week, Sylvia had the privilege uh, of uh, talking with uh, a friend of hers, and many, many people had been engaged in praying for this person, and Sylvia in boldness said, you know, would you actually uh, move to take that place? Do you feel ready to take that place where you would come actually and give your heart and your life to Jesus? And a friend said, yes, I want to do that. Uh, and so we celebrate together as a community that the gospel is changing people's lives and hearts and destinies. And sometimes in these conversations, people get so caught up with when eternity is going to begin that they forget that our job and our mission as believers is to help as many people get there as possibly can. And so here's the point of poking at this for a few minutes and that is just don't ever, ever, ever let your system of theological thinking be more important to you than just humbly hearing the text. Whenever you have an area where it's unclear or there's disagreement about some aspect of theology or God or the Bible, like just step back for a minute and see and learn what are the things that I might be missing or not accounting for in my conclusions. So, for example, with regards to Revelation 20, like each perspective actually brings to the table and sees something that the other perspectives are missing or not kind of accounting for in full ways. And so, you know, it, it takes some humility to sort of say, okay, my own view on this has some limitations and some weaknesses. And this is kind of the, I would say, the Achilles heel of making 
uh, and setting up too strong of systemic or systems kind of thinking around theology. I love it the way Daryl Johnson says it. He says, no attempt to systematize the biblical witness can do justice to the whole of the witness. No human designed biblical system can ever fully replace the biblical text itself. All systematizers, however well motivated, must always keep submitting their systems to the scrutiny of the text itself. And the almost comical but not really funny thing is that for about 200 years in the Christian tradition, we seemed unable to do that. Whole institutions went to war against each other. Whole systems and camps within were denied funding, promoted funding, because they agreed or didn't agree with your particular view, pre, post, uh, millennial, whatever. But the funny and again, it's almost comical, but it's not funny, is that this is the only place in the whole Bible where this is mentioned. Six verses. But this did not stop anyone from building whole systems of theology around six verses and going to war with other Christians, fighting massive theological battles and expending tons of energy. It would have been, in my opinion, hum humble opinion, just better to simply like agree to disagree on this one and say, you know what? You have your view on when the thousand years takes place. If it's a thousand years, the possible rapture of the church, seven years of tribulation. But again, can we focus not on the airtight systems, but can we focus on the points of agreement? And I think there's a lesson for, the, for us here in our day and in our time because there are very real interpretive differences that exist on other issues in the biblical text. And I think that millennial madness ought to teach us something about charity towards other viewpoints. And it ought to teach us cautionary notes about how airtight we make our own systems. And I think most importantly, it should teach us how to treat those who may disagree with us. All right, so enough on that. Let's keep moving on, or we will be here in Revelation for a millennia. So, turn to the text. Let's see what John sees in his vision. Now, you'll remember that Revelation unfolds with John saying, and I saw, and I saw. But uh, sometimes John is given multiple visions of the same event, and he sees it from different perspectives. So, we saw this happening in the middle section of Revelation with uh, seals and with trumpets and with bowls. Same event, different perspectives. Uh, and then we see here the same thing going on in chapter 19 and chapter 20. John is seeing this final battle between evil and good. And it's pictured for us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, and through to the end. Uh, but it's also pictured for us in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Revelation 19, and we will read in verse 11 as John's vision continues. And then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there, and its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. 
The armies of heaven, dressed in their finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses, and from his mouth came a sword, a sharp sword, to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun shouting to the vultures high in the sky and they come and they gather and there's this final battle scene and the entire, verse 21, the entire army was killed by a sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse and then there's this picture of carnage that happens and then it's repeated again for us uh, through the end of, of chapter 20. What we see here is a picture of Jesus, the picture of the King of Kings. And what John wants to help us and also his first readers understand is, why does Jesus win the battle in the end? Why does Jesus win? Well, ultimately, it is not because just the forces of good are stronger than the forces of evil although they are. It's not because Jesus' strategy is better than Satan's. John takes us back to the basics, and he says, Jesus wins simply because of who he is. And so he unpacks Jesus' character for us in verse after verse. In verse 11, he says, Jesus is faithful and true. He can judge, therefore, fully justly. Human beings, we make mistakes. We're not always reliable, but John says, you know what? God is always faithful. He is always faithful to His Word and to His promises, and He's faithful and, and true, and therefore, He can judge with justice and with righteousness because He judges with perfect holiness that only He possesses as the second person of the Godhead. Then John says, the other thing about Jesus that you need to know is Jesus sees things as they really are. His eyes blaze like, like fire, like they can see and penetrate right through us, right through to our motives. Jesus always sees things correctly. There can be no one who stands before God and the end of all things and says, well, God, that is not quite what I intended. You didn't see what was going on in my heart, in my motives on when I did X or Y. No, no. Jesus sees and he knows things as they truly are. He's the victor. In chapter 19, verse 12, it says, he wears many crowns on his head. And a crown is a symbol of victory. And in the ancient world, uh, kings and leaders would, ru would rule with their crowns and sit with their crowns on their head. And if they had conquered more than one nation, they would take the crown from that king and also put it on their head so that everybody knew, that person's not the king over that place anymore. I'm the king over this place. And so sometimes when you would go in and meet with a sovereign, they would have multiple crowns stuck on their head and you would be really impressed because you were like, wow, they're a king of a lot of things. And John says, Oh, you want to know who's king over every king and Lord every Lord? Look at how many crowns are on Jesus' head. Many, 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 many crowns. 
And John is painting this picture of contrast because, remember, in chapter 12, Satan, the dragon, is portrayed as having seven crowns on seven heads. And then we go forward and we see the beast, and the beast has ten crowns on seven heads. And John's saying here in chapter 19, let me be perfectly clear. There is only one ultimate ruler and king, and his name is King Jesus. And he wears the crown of victory, and he wears the crown of victory before he even goes into battle because he already rules and reigns. He has already won it. So he doesn't somehow become the king at the end of all things. Right now he is ruling and reigning. But John just doesn't stop writing down what he sees uh, in his vision. He talks about the fact that Jesus has a name that no one knows except Jesus. Well, what's this about? Well, if you know someone's name, you can get their attention or you can exercise a certain degree of control over them. You can shout like, Hey, Wally! And Wally will look up. And so, in the ancient world, it was believed that if you knew the name of a god, you could invoke that god and kind of control their powers in some way. And also, in the Bible, a person's name said something about their character. And this is why in the biblical story, sometimes people's names get changed to signify something about their character. And so we have Abram becoming Abraham, father of many. Simon becomes Peter. Saul gets renamed Paul. And so name is a revelation of someone's character, who you are. And so John says, listen, you, you can't actually even get to the place where you can use Jesus' name to control and manipulate him like some magic deity. Oh, if I just pray the right prayers, then Jesus has got to answer me. Oh, if I just give the right formula of kind of getting the right people in the room to pray, the right incantations, or maybe I should be anointed with oil. Maybe it's a... No. John says, you don't even have the ability to manipulate Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead. And also, just think about the reality that no matter how much you or I devote ourselves to studying and learning about or being present with Jesus, there's always, always more to discover. Like you'll never come to the end of it. You could go to church your entire life. You could listen and read the Bible end to end to end to end to end. You could become a fanatical student of the Scriptures. You could learn everything there is to know and you still would not come to the end and be fully able to say, I know everything there is to know about Jesus. His character is so rich and vast. No matter how much Jesus reveals to us about himself, he's the son of God, the bread of life, the son of man, the light of the world, faithful and true, hope of the nations, on and on and on it goes. There's still more to know. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He's a prince of peace. He's the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. On and on and on and on and on it goes. His name, his character is so rich and so vast that it's unknowable fully to us on this side of eternity. I love the way that F. Dale Bruner says it. He says, 
once you get into the Jesus school, learning about Jesus, you never graduate. There's no graduates from the Jesus school. In other words, you and I can spend the entirety of our lives learning, studying, and we will never, never, never exhaust the riches of Jesus' love and grace in the depth of his character. We will always be students. We will always be disciples. We will never be masters or have God figured out. What else do we see in this text about Jesus? We see that it says his robe is dipped in blood. So you might come to this part in the text and think, aha, I knew it. I knew that the Bible was showing us this violent image of God who just goes around killing anybody who opposes him, ordering the slaughter of innocent people. His robe is drenched in blood. See, here it is. But friends, here's a picture for us to consider. He hasn't gone into battle. His robe is dipped in blood before the battle even begins. And so we have to pause for a moment and ask, whose blood is it? If it's not the blood of the enemies in battle, John's led us to this picture, and he wants us to be clear that the blood on his robe is his own blood. You see, we may not know everything that there is to know about Jesus, but this we do know, that he won the battle over sin, evil, and death by shedding his own blood on the cross. And this is what John's picturing for us also in this image of the wine press outside of the city. In John 14, 20, he uses it again. And he doesn't use it in a future tense saying, it will be tread out. He uses it and says, he tread out. The wine press is located out of the city, and John is trying to help us understand where was the cross located again? Just outside the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus shed his blood to absorb punishment for your sins and mine. And Jesus rides into the battle with the blood on his robe because he is already victorious. He won the victory on the cross. When he cried out, it is finished, it was finished. Now, sin and Satan and evil still are very real, and they have very real and horrific powers that are working out in our world in ways that touch our lives. But ultimately, they do not have the final word they are leashed both in scope and in duration because there will come a day when the victory that Jesus won on Calvary will be consummated forever. And John gives us this picture of this beginning at the start of chapter 19. Let's go back to the beginning of 19 and read together. In verse 1, he says, And after this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and just. He has punished Babylon, the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And again, their voices rang out. Praise the Lord. The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. And then the 24 elders and four living 
living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne, and they cried out, Amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God and his servants, all who fear him, for the least to the greatest. And I heard again what sounded like a vast crowd shouting or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice in Him. Let us give honor to Him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and His bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words that come from God. Do you know, this is the, for all the times that it appears in our worship songs that we sing, this is actually the only instance in the New Testament where the word hallelujah appears. In the Old Testament, it appears over and over again in a short cluster of psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. And those psalms of praise and hallelujah were sung at a very specific meal. And the meal was the Feast of Passover. This was the meal that Jewish people to this day celebrate to commemorate God's miraculous and divine work of deliverance. And so John here gets into full voice as he starts to describe the fall of the principalities and powers that oppose God. And the biggest, clearest picture that he can give us of this is it's like a banquet. It's like that banquet that happens at a wedding. After the ceremony's done, after all of the preparations are done, after all of those things, the work and the months of, of, of getting ready, when you get to the meal, the work is done. You get to sit down and enjoy together relationship with those who you love and who have accepted your invitation with you to your feast. And you dance and you sing and you delight in each other's company. And all through the scriptures... We have description after description after description of God's relationship with his people like a bride to a bridegroom. And one day, God the Father is going to throw the most lavish and beautiful feast that the world has ever, ever known. He's going to throw the biggest party for his son Jesus. And one day... The bride will be ready and will come to the table and will sit. And his bride is you and his bride is me, the church. And the text resounds again and again and says, if you have been invited to come to the wedding feast of the Lamb, oh, you are blessed. If you have responded and said yes, if you have made yourself ready, if you have said yes to that, to Jesus, you've been given the privilege of being in relationship with God. You've been given this robe of purity 
to wear. It's his gift. It's not something that you work your way into or earn. Caitlin and the team are coming, and our servers are going to be available just at the back for two stations for communion this morning. And our practice here at Jericho with communion is that it's an open communion, meaning that if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come. You don't have to be perfect, have everything all together. It is wise for you to spend time asking, you know, um, are there anything in my life that I need to pay attention to or attend to? And any areas of sin that God points out with you to deal with those or any broken relationships with other people to deal with those. But when we move into our time of sung worship, I want to invite you to take a piece of bread and that communion cup and you take it back to your seat and participate as you are ready. And communion is an invitation to come to a table. It's an invitation to come to a meal until that great day when we share the feast together. We live in this time between time. We're in this season between first advent and second advent, Jesus' first coming and his second. And so we wait and we struggle and our hearts are filled with longing. Our lives are filled with areas of brokenness. We wait with our hearts filled with hope. But on one of his last nights here on earth, Jesus celebrated, and he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. And he transformed that meal into a symbol that we actually still use today. He said to him, this bread that you're going to take, it actually represents something. It represents my sacrifice for you, that I am giving my body for you. This juice, the fruit of the vine, it represents my blood that is being shed for you to win victory. And as often as you gather for this symbolic meal, you are proclaiming the fact that the victory has been won, but the war is not yet over. We're proclaiming the fact that it's not a full banquet meal yet. It's just a foretaste. It's a preview of coming attractions. And it reminds us that we have been invited to participate in something that the world has never known or could know. We are invited to come to a feast of relationship with Jesus and to eat. And so these small elements become symbols of that. They become a symbol of faith that we say one day. One day I'm going to eat this in relationship with my love and Savior God at the wedding feast of the Lamb. One day we're going to drink together at the banquet table that's set before us that will enrapture us in wonder and delight like we our soul has never known. And it will be in such awe and wonder that all we will be able to do is fall down and say, Hallelujah, the Lord Almighty reigns. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's partake together as a declaration. When you're ready, you can stand, move to the tables. Our prayer team will also be available for you at the side and the back, and we'll continue in worship.